Welcome this morning. It's great to have you here in the building and also to those who are joining us online. I just want to say thank you so much for choosing to be here. A number of years ago, Harvard University psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Dave Gilbert conducted a study on mind wandering and their findings were quite confronting. They reported that 47% of the time, people's minds are not in the same place their feet are. Killingsworth was quoted as saying, this study shows that our mental lives are pervaded to a remarkable degree by the non-present. If we accept the findings of this study, on average, 47% of the time that you're in a conversation with someone else, that person's mind has wandered. They are not fully engaged. But it also means this. 47% of the time that you're here in this room with me... No, you won't do that. Um, 47% of the time, your mind isn't where your feet are. Craig Rochelle spoke about the challenge to be present. And he stated that there is no question that one of the things that has been identified as an enemy to people being fully present is their mobile phones. People are often distracted from the very place they are by something they think they have control over. He quoted a study that was done in the United States that found that the average mobile phone user touches their phone 2,600 times a day. The average mobile phone user touches their phone 2,600 times a day, checking, scrolling, texting, reading. The average is 2,600. The top 10% of mobile touches touch their phone 5,400 times a day. The distractions of the mobile are not the only factor that contributes to people's minds being somewhere else. For some of us, we allow our minds to drift to when. When this finishes, when this service is over, I'm going to get a coffee. Oh, coffee. Oh, Dave's here this morning. When this is over, I'll get him to pay for my coffee. <laughs> when I get home, I must remember to put the bins out. When I get home, I must remember to make that phone call. And our minds wander when, when, when. 47% of the time, your mind is not where your feet are. And too often, we miss this moment, the now. So I'm going to ask us all, just for the next hour, work hard to be where your feet are. Work hard to be where your feet are. Work at being present to the people that you'll engage with this morning as you have coffee with them, as you spend time chatting. Be with them. And choose strongly to be present in this gathering to what's been said, sung and done. And please right now, I want to ask you as strongly and as um, I want to plead with you to be present to God. To be aware that he is present here and now. And be open and present to him. I'm going to ask you in this moment to invite God to help you to be aware of him. 
in this moment right now, I want you to ask God to help you to be aware of him right now. I want to ask you to be open now to encounter him, to engage with him. I said to the youth and kids ministry leaders last weekend that I believe that most of them who were there would believe that God was present at camp. But if I was to sit down with them individually and ask them to be really, really honest with me, were they expecting to encounter him during the weekend? Were they expecting him to do anything that weekend? Were they expecting him to help them, to challenge them, to teach them, to use them, to love them that weekend? What about you this morning? Are you expecting anything from God this morning? Are you expecting to encounter God this morning? Or have you come because this is what you do? Do you believe that God is present? Do you believe that he wants you to encounter him this morning? We've had some excellent teaching about the Holy Spirit over the last couple of weeks. And I'm going to ask you to be very open and aware that the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work in your lives. So please be present to God. Listen, be ready. God is here and he is at work. We might just need to be here as well. In one of the articles I read, it spoke about the need for us to catch the drift. It talked about the importance of working to bring ourselves back to the present. It talked about zoning in, not zoning out. And it had these little tips about tapping your watch or wriggling your bracelet or just clenching your hands together to remind you to be present and to ask yourself, what has my attention right now? What has my attention right now? Does God have my attention? So I'm going to ask you to do whatever will help you to choose to have your brain in the same place as your feet. So would you please pray with me? Father God, I believe that you are here. And I believe that if we just now honestly come before you and open ourselves and, and just trust as best we can that you will speak to us, that you will remind us, that you will draw our attention to things, that you will help us, you will teach us. Father, I ask that you help us to be present to you, really aware of you in this time. And I thank you for every person who's gathered because that's a big deal. It's a big deal to you. So, Father, help us to be focused and to be aware and to really do our very best uh, to just let you, in this time, love us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Craig Rochelle, who I've already mentioned, is a very well-known, well-respected pastor, teacher, and leader. He is the senior pastor of Life Church in America. Life Church is fairly well known because it developed what's called the Uversion Bible app, which now is on over 500 million different devices around the world. Early last year, Grishel preached a series called Predecide, and I've listened to that series and I've been challenged and I've found it really, really helpful. 
And over a number of weeks, he spoke about the importance of decisions and the importance of deciding before you you decide now what you're going to do later. You determine your course of action before you're in the moment. He talked about choosing to think carefully in an unrushed, unpressured way to discern with God's help what you need to do with decisions ahead of time, how you'll react when you're in a certain situation. Let me give you an example. You are with a group and they begin to gossip about someone you know and their gossip is fast and furious and everyone in the group is in. So what should you do? I want to suggest that if you wait until you're in that situation and you try to make a decision when you're just in that moment, there is a fairly good chance that you may go along with the gossip and get caught up in joining in or you might just stay silent which might convince you that you're not doing anything wrong. But I want to suggest that you're probably not doing anything right either. Grishel in the series made strong statements about really appreciating the power of our pre-decisions. He stated that the quality of your decisions determine the quality of your life. He stated that we make decisions and our decisions make us. And he spoke at length of the importance of consistency. This is the key. Making one good big decision is good. It's important. But what usually has far greater impact in a person's life is consistently making small decisions, small good decisions, moment by moment over time. But that's not easy, making good quality decisions. He stated that one of the reasons some of us struggle to consistently make good decisions is that we're overwhelmed with choices. We have to keep making decisions all day. Some studies have shown that in the course of a day, some people are faced with 35,000 decisions. From the moment they wake, what do I wear? What do I eat? What will I watch? And because of that, our decision-making muscle becomes fatigued. It tires out. There is now a term used by social scientists. They talk about decision fatigue. They claim that as the volume of decisions increase, the quality of those decisions decrease. They also claim that this fatigue applies to all decisions, not simply the large ones or more difficult ones. They suggest that it can help some people to think of the decision-making ability to their decision-making ability as a finite source, such as a battery. Each decision reduces the charge of the battery and the person has less energy to make other decisions later on. And this explains why some people who have, made, who have to make lots of decisions in their workplace and they work hard all day at making good decisions because they get that those decisions have consequences. But then they go home and they relax. And somehow, they start to choose to eat the wrong foods. They eat too much. Or they drink too much. Or they sit and watch stuff on TV that is just rubbish. Or they go on social media media, thinking they'll only spend 10 minutes. And three hours later, they're still there. These aren't quality decisions. But it just seems as though they don't have the energy to make tough, good decisions. Decision fatigue. 
Grishel also highlighted the problem is, for some of us, we are afraid of making a wrong decision and so we procrastinate and we make no decision, which really is a decision. For some of us, we want to make the perfect decision and we hold off and we hold off and we hold off and we become convinced that we just have to wait for the perfect time. The problem is that it paralyzes us and we are less likely to make any decision, which is a decision. I remember years ago listening to this bloke called Jim Burns. Jim Burns was a veteran youth pastor in the United States. And he stated that his belief was that the problem isn't that young people make lots of dumb, bad decisions. He said the problem for most young people isn't that they make dumb, bad decisions. The problem for many young people is that they don't make enough decisions. He said that he'd spent lots of time encouraging young people to think carefully, pray hard, ask God for help, but decide to decide. Make decisions. Grishel states that one of the ways in order to make better quality decisions is for us to pre-decide, to pray, to think, and then determine this is the way I want to move forward. This is the way I will act in these situations. It will help you make better quality decisions and it will help when it comes to consistency with decisions. Come back to the gossip deal. A number of years ago in a different setting, not a church setting, but a, an organisation that I was part of and very involved in, there was a gentleman who would regularly come to me um, and he would always want to talk about other people that we both knew but not in a good way. For some reason, regularly, he would come up to me and he would begin to gossip about others. And I want to confess that at the first few times, I did not handle that well. But I sat down and I carefully thought about what I believed to be right in that situation. And then I made some decisions about how I would handle that in the future. And I determined... I resolved that any time he began to talk about someone in a negative way, I would quickly jump into the conversation and say something positive, good about that person. I would say, oh, that hasn't been my experience. I've always found him or her to be really, and I would find something good about that person. It was a choice. And I made that choice carefully and, and without pressure well before the next time I had to face that situation. And I had to be determined about it. I want to tell you the first couple of times that I chose to act in that way, can I tell you, it was so awkward. It just was really awkward. He would start in on someone and I would be bouncing into the conversation and then you know, the conversation would just die. And we'd both stand there until one of us found something else to introduce into the conversation, or we walked away. But I want to tell you this. I believed that it was right. And I had pre-decided that this is the way I was going to go, and so I stuck to it. And he eventually stopped gossiping to me. I'm not sure whether he was gossiping to anyone else, but he stopped gossiping to me. And he eventually began, we began to have better conversations. I did not lose that connection with him. It just began to be a whole lot healthier. And after a while, 
He began to open up about the struggles and pain in his life as a result of abuse as a child. He began to talk about his strong desire to be a good, involved dad. And I was able to share with him some of my struggles and how my faith helped me. But I want to say to you that I doubt we would have ever got to that if I had stayed quiet or just gone along with the gossip. Pre-decide. Decide before what you will do later. Choose in the calm light of day what you will do in that future moment. But make some decisions. Later this morning, I'm going to ask you to humbly ask God to help you to know what you need to make a decision about. Excuse me. To be really open and allow God to direct you about that area, that situation, that relationship, that commitment that you need to make a decision about. I believe that he will. I believe that he's here. One of the best examples of pre-deciding for me is, is Daniel, of Daniel and the lion's den deal. The story of Daniel is found in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament. And I want to recommend that you read it and read the whole story. But let me give you some background. Nebuchadnezzar became emperor of Babylon and its conquered territories. Uh, including the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, in about 605 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar was well known for making regular visits to his conquered territories to take tribute and personnel from them and to dispense justice. And it was on one of these visits that it changed the trajectory of the lives of Daniel and his companions. As part of Nebuchadnezzar's policy for dealing with conquered nations, he would take the best of their young men back to Babylon, back to the centre of his power, and he would have them trained in his service. He wanted to assimilate them into Babylon. And Daniel and his friends were taken from their families, they were taken from their society, their culture, they were transported to a strange land many kilometres away, And they had to cope with not only the emotional trauma of forcible removal from their parents and family, but also the sheer strangeness of their new surroundings, new language, new customs, new political system, new laws, new education, new beliefs. And I want you to understand that it's important for us to know that Daniel was a teenager when he was taken, maybe as young as 12 or 13, when he was taken to Babylon. Let's read Daniel chapter 1. This is how it goes. In the third year of the reign of Jochum, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Israel, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. And then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishai, and Azariah. The king's official gave them new names to Daniel, 
the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, but Daniel, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any other young man your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of those 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and their wine and they were to drink that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end, thanks Dave. Thanks mate. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Michelle and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in, in his whole kingdom. Reading history, you understand that Nebuchadnezzar was considered to be a very shrewd and strategic ruler. He administered his empire well and his recruitment process was planned and deliberate. He chose the brightest and the best from his conquered territories and then he stripped them of their identity. He took their names, he took their language, he took their religion and he made them all things Babylonian so that they would bring their best to Babylon, so that they would work for the empire. And it would appear that most of the captured went along with this reprogramming. But Daniel and his mates were different. And we read that it started with a predecision. It started with a resolve about eating from the king's table. Now understand that the food on that table would have been the best on offer and plenty of it. It would have been great food. And remember, these were teenage boys. But the food on the table would have also included certain foods that Jews did not eat because of religious reasons. Some meat would have been expressly forbidden by their religious law. Any meat from a pig, for example, was seen to be unclean. And they, and would, they believed, defile them, damage their purity before God, their standing before God. Or they would have been concerned that some of the meat on the table would have been offered in sacrifice to an idol or blessed in the name of an idol. Now, we may not believe these things can have any effect on our relationship with God, but that isn't the point. Daniel and his mates believed that eating those foods would do damage to their relationship with God, and so they firmly decided. 
they pre-decided well before they got to the table that they weren't going to eat from the table. That was their decision. And they were determined to be consistent with that decision. No wavering. And then carefully, respectfully, they communicated their decision to the person who had authority over them. And I want you to notice that they were really smart. They had made their decision and they had plenty of time to think through how they should implement it, how they should follow through. And so they did it carefully and wisely. There was no confrontation, no demanding their way or the highway, no display of defiance. It simply says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. He was careful, he was respectful. And when the official indicates his concern, Daniel has already thought through a possible solution for his concerns. He was prepared. He had made a decision and then he had time and space to put the decision into practice properly. This pre-decision was seemingly insignificant. But I want to say to you as you read the whole book of Daniel, I want to say that without this first small step, I do not believe that there would have ever been a Daniel in the lion's den. Without this first small step, this important decision, there would have been no Daniel second in charge of the empire. And there would have been no Daniel, the keeper of faith in God, the one who kept faith alive for himself and also those around him. This decision mattered way more than it seemed initially. And it is obvious from reading Daniel that his decision, his pre-decision about the food mattered greatly to God. Because God responded in an extraordinary way. He, he, he blessed and he used and he gave extraordinary gifts to those who had stood firm at that moment. Daniel resolved in this area. This is how I will operate. This is the decision I make now. So when I'm faced in the moment, I, this is what I will do. This is the way forward. Craig Rochelle um, shared a couple of stories in his messages. He shared that over the last couple of years, for some reason, he's decided in his 50s to take up a martial art. And he said he's been learning this martial art and he's often um, competing and wrestling against people in their 20s. He's in his 50s. And he talked about the fact that just recently he got his blue band on his white belt. And he was really proud of it. He was really, really proud that he finally got this little blue belt. He'd made it to this, this part. And his instructor, who's a world champion, was talking to him as he presented with the blue belt. And he said to Greg, Greg Rochelle, what do you think is the hardest belt to get? What's the hardest belt to get? And Craig Rochelle simply said back, well, uh, the, the black belt. The black belt's the hardest one to get. And then his instructor said, no, that's not right. The hardest belt to get is the white belt because most people don't start. The hardest belt to get is the white belt because most people don't choose to start. And then he said to Craig Rochelle, what's a black belt? And Rochelle said, someone you run from. But then his friend said this. His instructor said this. Now, that's not true. A black belt 
He's just a white belt that never gave up. A black belt is just a white belt that stayed consistent, that kept turning up, that kept making the decision that they would be there, that they would put themselves through this, that they would learn. Just start. I'm going to ask you to be really present to God's spirit. I actually believe that there are some here who need to make decisions. Maybe it's time to decide, to resolve, not to be so judgmental. Maybe it's time to decide that you're going to work really hard on giving others the benefit of the doubt. Or just pre-decide that you don't have to have an opinion about everything. That our world doesn't need your opinion on everything. Last night I got a phone call late from a lady whose son took her life on Friday. And she just wanted to talk. She just wanted to talk. And she cried a lot, sobbed. And I will go and visit her after this. I will go spend time with her because I just let her talk. You never know what people are going through. You never know their battles and their struggles. So give them the benefit of the doubt. Resolve to give them the benefit of the doubt. For some here this morning, maybe it's time for you to resolve that you're going to start finding reasons to be at church on a Sunday rather than finding excuses not to. For some, it might be that you need to resolve around your attachment to social media and the hours that it chews. Or it could be that it's got to be a decision about a certain friendship. Or perhaps it's time to say that I just need to decide about that next step in my relationship with God. Maybe I need to just consider baptism. I know last week Dion spoke very powerfully about baptism. And maybe that's your decision. And Maybe you've been waiting for the perfect time. Can I tell you there's no perfect time? There's just now. So maybe you just need to decide. It might, need, it might be that you, you decide, you, you resolve that you're going to follow the prompting of God no matter what. If I sense it and it lines up with how I believe God wants me to operate, I will act. Rochelle talks about this in his series and he talks about the fact that he made this decision a little while ago in his life that he would actually seek every time he sensed God's prompting to follow that prompting. Whenever he sensed that kind of still small voice or that just that nudge that he would actually act on that. He wouldn't kind of uh, second guess it. He wouldn't try to just kind of explain it away or make an excuse he would just follow the prompting of God and he tells the story of he and his wife were away doing ministry in another part of the world and they had the morning off and they only had the morning and they decided that they would walk to the beach it was a 30 minute walk from their motel to the beach and he was really excited but the whole way along he felt um, this 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 nudge this this sense that he should phone this friend back in the United States and he talks about the fact that he just, he was with his wife. They were going to the beach. It was the only morning he had off. But as he got to the beach, he just said that this, this sense was really strong. 
And he got there after walking 30 minutes and he said to his wife, I just have a sense, I have a prompting that I should phone so-and-so back in the States. And he said, because his wife knows about his decision, his pre-decision to follow God's prompting, um, she simply says, well, you better do it. And he thought, oh, great. So then he walked all the way back to his motel because he'd left his phone back there. 30 minutes back, picked up the phone and he phoned his friend. And he said his friend answered and his friend's uh, response when he answered was, why are you calling me? And Grishel kind of got taken back and was thinking, what's the time difference? Have I phoned at a really bad time? And before he could kind of explain anything, his friend said, why are you phoning me? And Grishel said he felt the prompting again. God's Holy Spirit prompting him to ask him, are you okay? Are you okay? And his friend said, no, I'm not. And then Grishel said, do you have a gun with you? And his friend said, yes. And Grishel then talked to him about the fact that God loved him dearly. And God loved him so much that he had prompted Grishel on the other side of the world to make that phone call to him, to make sure that he knew that God cared and God was there and there would be a way through this. And so his friend put the gun down and walked to his next door neighbour. Grishel also talks, tells a story about feeling prompted to pray for his son when his teenage son had all his mates over. So he walked into the room with his, mate, with his son and his teenage mates and he simply said to his son, his son's a, a, a Christian, I'd like to, um, I just feel like I should pray for you, is that okay? And he said the look on his son's face was, what are you doing, Dad? But his son went, okay. And so he prayed. And he said at the end of it, uh, there was this kind of awkward silence while his son just looked at him like, great, thanks, Dad. And then he walked out. And he has no idea why he, did, what, why he felt prompted to pray for his son. And he said, that's what it's about. Sometimes we'll know and other times we won't. But the deal is, are we faithful? Are we prepared to be faithful? Are we prepared to follow the prompting of God? I encouraged our staff a little while ago to really be faithful in this area. If you sense God's prompting, do it. And I'm going to encourage you this morning. There are people in this room. There are people in this room who've taken the very courageous step to come this morning. They're here. And if you sense the prompting of God this morning, go and speak to somebody to encourage them, to buy them a coffee. I'm going to ask you to do that. Daniel, Daniel was able to resolve around the king's table because he knew what and who he valued. Daniel was able to resolve about the king's table because he knew what and who he valued. He knew what he valued. He valued his identity as one of God's chosen people. He valued faithfulness. He valued consistency. He valued having integrity and a character that was worthy of respect. And he valued God. God was important to Daniel. He placed a high value on that relationship. And he did not want to let God down or offend God in any way. He understood what he valued and he understood who he valued. And being clear about his values helped Daniel to understand better 
what he needed to make decisions about, what he needed to pre-decide about. And it helped him make those decisions more consistently. Having clarity about what and who he valued also gave Daniel vital perspective. He knew who he was living for. Even though Daniel lived in Babylon and he was faithful in his service to its rulers, he lived for another kingdom and he lived for another king. Who are you living for? I know where you live. I don't really, but I'm guessing Toowoomba. But who are you living for? This morning, as this service continues, I'm going to ask you to take a risk, to do your very best to be present to God and ask him to draw your attention to something that you need to do, something that you need to make a decision about, and then make the decision, decide to decide. I'm going to ask you as this week goes on to think carefully about the things that you might need to pre-decide about in certain situations, in certain settings. What do you need to pre-decide about? I'm going to encourage all of you because I believe that God's Spirit is at work to follow His prompting this morning. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for the example of Daniel. Help us to be open to learn from that. Help us to be careful and wise. Help us not to make excuses. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to pre-decide in certain areas. I pray that we would resolve, we would have determination about certain things. And Lord, I pray that we would listen to your prompting. I pray, Father, that we would be open to your spirit. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity that we've had together. I thank you for um, the things that you have imparted, that you've put on our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us now to be obedient and faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.